You know, life is filled with hard questions, yet people of faith can face hard questions with confidence. Today, we'll look at some of the toughest questions that people often ask those who are followers of Christ. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Dr. Zuckerman is an author, speaker, and scholar who examines today's worldviews and issues in the light of biblical Christianity. Today, Pat continues a series on 10 questions every Christian must answer. And these are some doozies, but Pat is going to take them head on. And by the way, you may have some questions as well. I think all of us do. So be sure and let us know what they are by going to our website, evidenceandanswers.org. There you'll find resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. Download past shows, articles, and more. And our resources could be a real help, not only to you, but to that friend or family member who may be going through a period of doubt or unanswered questions. And if you have a college student in your life, they could especially benefit from the intelligent, insightful information available at evidenceandanswers.org. So go there today, evidenceandanswers.org. Pat, let's continue with part two of 10 questions every Christian must answer. And you have a special guest to introduce as well. Yes, Kevin. I want to introduce a good friend, Tony Solis. Tony is a recognized figure here in the islands of Hawaii. Tony hosts his own very popular local TV show. And he'll be joining me as a co-host here in the beautiful islands of Hawaii. So, Tony, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Pat. You know what an opportunity it is to uh, be here uh, with evidence and answers. One of my hobbies... Tony, is to look at atheist websites and atheist literature and see what kind of challenges and questions and issues they're presenting to Christians. And one that I found was on GodIsImaginary.org. And the atheist here presented what he believed were 10 knockout questions that would really expose the fallacies of the Christian worldview and the Christian faith. And it's been a great opportunity just to share and show that there are intelligent answers to these questions that are actually the best answers over what any atheist could answer to these challenges and uh, presented a great case, a compelling case for the truth and reasonableness of Christianity. Pat, let's move on to the next question here. Why is God such a huge proponent of slavery in the Bible? Mm, Good question. Yeah, you know, and this question shows that our friend here doesn't understand the teachings of the Bible. He's not really familiar with biblical teachings. Mm -hmm. You know, slavery is unethical. It's unbiblical. Neither Paul's actions nor his writings approved of it. And in fact, it was the application of the biblical principles that ultimately led to the end and overthrow of slavery here in the U.S. and in Europe. And several important facts should be noted, you know, in connection to this from the very beginning, God declared all humans are created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. We're all equal in nature. The apostle reaffirms that. In Acts 17, he says, you know, we are the offspring of God. He made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Secondly, in spite of the fact that slavery was part of the Semitic culture of the day, in the Old Testament, the law demanded that slaves be treated well and treated with respect. Read the Old Testament law, Exodus 21. Also, Exodus 21 states what? Eventually, in the seventh year, you must free the slave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, and Paul in the New Testament talks about masters treating their slaves with respect, with dignity. And he states in Galatians 3, there's neither male nor female, nor slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. All social classes are broken down. So in the New Testament, they don't approve of slavery. Paul is saying if you are a slave, 
Treat your master with respect as being a good witness to Christ. If you own slaves, treat them with respect and dignity. Mm-hmm. And eventually remember, it is the principles of the Bible that led to the end of slavery in America and the West. So which leads us, uh, Pat, to another question. What is it that a bondservant is? Yeah, in the Old and New Testament, mm-hmm. there are some slaves who didn't want to leave their masters. Right. You know, They're fi- treated very well. Right, treated very well. And for financial reasons, mm-hmm. you know, their family was also to be taken care of mm-hmm. as well. And so some men freely chose to be uh, with their master for another seven years out of their own free will. And that's kind of the picture uh, of how Christians were to treat their slaves and even in the Old Testament, how mm-hmm. the Jewish community was to treat their slaves. So it's the Bible that taught the ethical respectful treatment of slaves and the eventual freeing of their slaves. Very, very good point. And uh, uh, even our world leader today, um, our President Obama, uh, when he was speaking of the Bible, he said, you know, the Bible speaks of slavery, all these negative things, but he has no understanding on what it is from the biblical uh, view of slavery. Right, Tony. And, you know, speaking of our United States, you know, the Bible is the most quoted work in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, in the Federalist Papers, and in the Declaration of Independence. Well, some may say, well, the writers of the Declaration had slaves. Well, guess what? It is the principles in the Declaration of Independence that came from the Bible that, guess what, led to the freedom of the slaves and the shedding of nearly half a million young men and women fighting here in the U.S. to free African-Americans from slavery. You know, as we were talking about last week, this site, GodIsImaginary.org, is a site developed by unbelievers, of course, atheists uh, that debunk God in every possible way can. But for the Christian view, the Christian perspective, from a biblical view, it gives us as Christians opportunities to show that God exists. So, you know, um, hey, maybe we should be thanking them for giving us this opportunity to say, here, this is how God is, and this is the truth. And you're right, Pat, they are reasonable. Now, to go over the questions we asked last week, you could log on to uh, Pat's website at evidenceandanswers.org. But right now, we're going to continue with the questions. And uh, let's start Start again, Pat. Here we go. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that's the question of God, evil, and suffering. And in fact, if you look at the 10 of these questions, about half of them deal with that classic question of God and evil. An all-powerful, all-loving God exists, and why do bad things happen? Why is there evil in this world? Now, once again, best way to answer this question is with a question. As an atheist, how do you define evil? Mm. How do you define good and bad? You know, if you're defining something as evil, you're pointing to an ultimate standard of good from which we have deviated or we fall short from. Where does that ultimate standard of good come from? Mm -hmm. Moral law implies a moral lawgiver. You see, because morality is tied to personhood, not to nature or things. So, you know, the atheist is in a dilemma here. Mm -hmm. How do you define evil? Why is the death or tragedy to quote good people why is that a bad thing you Mm -hmm. know because for the atheist life is an accident we're here as a cosmic accident there's really no ultimate meaning or purpose for our existence in the end we all face extinction the universe will one day die and become extinct so will mankind what difference does it make that we were ever here nietzsche voltaire other great atheist philosophers all concluded if god does not exist life is meaningless and morality 
mm-hmm. is meaningless. Now, when you get back to a moral lawgiver, it's funny how things here in the Western world compared to deep, dark Africa, let's say, you know, where they've never had a, a pinch of Western civilization. Yet with them, murder is wrong. Adultery is wrong. And uh, they had no touch with Western civilization. So uh, the moral law doesn't span only um, within the within the Christian community, but it is a global thing. Right. There's a universal moral law code. Where does that come from? Where does it come from? That's the question, you know. And Romans chapter 2, if God exists, and there's, as we talked about last week, there's compelling evidence that God exists. The moral law is another example or another evidence for the existence of God. Where does that moral law come from? And Romans chapter 2 says that moral law is embedded in our hearts, in Mm. our conscience, and it comes from a God who is moral, who is just, who is good. That's why we can identify things as bad and as evil. And there's a universal moral law in all cultures throughout the world. And it's the same. (laughs) It's the same all around. Yeah, and even in the world religions, when it comes to the ethical part, there are many similarities. Why? We got that universal moral law code from a moral lawgiver, God. So back to the question, Tony, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, mm-hmm. once again, you know, as we mentioned last week, for the atheist, they can't come up with a reasonable answer that makes sense. For the Christian, God created men and women in his image, mm-hmm. which means a perfect being can do the greatest good, which is to love. Yet to love requires what we call free will, mm-hmm. the ability to choose. But in free will, there is the potential for evil. And Adam and Eve choosing to disobey God, that's how sin and evil entered into the world. Mm -hmm. And a morally good God, you know, allowed that to happen. And he will one day defeat evil and bring it to an end and bring about his purpose in the world. In the meantime, we do struggle as a result of sin. And bad things happen to good people because sin is in the world. But ultimately, God will triumph over sin and he'll bring it to an end. But also think about it. You know, Second Peter states, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but to all to come to know him. If God were to put an end to evil right now, what would that mean? Well, everyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ would be eternally separated from God forever. You know, I'm glad God was patient with me mm-hmm. because if he said, hey, in 1980, I'm going to bring judgment to the world, bring an end to evil, I would be in hell today yes. because I didn't come to Christ till several years later. So I'm glad that God is patient, yet in his patience, he is allowing us and allowing man to continue if they want to, to reject him and disobey. And as a result of sin, bad things happen not only to bad people, but to good people as well. But it's the Christian that can define what is evil. It's the Christian that presents a message of hope that in the end, our suffering and all that we go through ultimately has meaning. It builds our character, builds our perseverance. And there's hope that one day the king is coming back to put an end to evil and make all things right. That's a message of meaning and hope we can present that the atheists cannot. Now, uh, another question here. Why didn't any of Jesus's miracles leave behind any evidence? Once again, you know, that shows just his uh, misunderstanding or lack of knowledge, Mm -hmm. ignorance of the evidence that is there. God certainly left a lot of evidence behind. One, the New Testament. You know, these were written many by eyewitnesses 
who left a very historically reliable eyewitness account. And the evidence is quite compelling. You're going to have to go to evidenceandanswers.org and go to historical reliability of the Gospels and uh, archaeology and the Bible and other shows like that show that. Uh, so very briefly, I just need to sum up here. The Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, we've got compelling evidence that they're written well within the first century. The first generation accounts written well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Archaeology has shown these to be very accurate historical accounts. Also, we have over a dozen non-Christian or what we can call even anti-Christian works. Tacity, Pliny the Younger, Julius Africanus, Thallus, Celsus, Josephus, the Jewish Talmud, and others verify or affirm the events, the people, and the accounts given in the New Testament. So we've got a very accurate historical work that is a record, a witness, to the fact that there was a historical person named Jesus Christ who lived a very miraculous life, who died and rose again. And when it comes to the resurrection, Tony, we've got great evidence for the resurrection. It's one of the best attested to ancient historical events that we have. You know, we've got the New Testament, we've got Pliny, we've got Tacitus, you know, we've got these non-Christian historical mm -hmm. records that affirm the events of the New Testament, that Christ existed, he lived a very significant life, and that he died. Now, they, several of these record that his disciples believed he rose again. And if you look at the evidence that we all affirm the tomb site was known, it was found empty on the third day, the disciples preached in Jerusalem that they preached in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses in Jerusalem, in the place where the people who crucified Christ were still there, you know, that they could preach this kind of message in there and it could not be refuted. You're going to have to go to evidenceandanswers.org and go to the shows we have on the resurrection to show that this is one of the best attested to ancient historical events. There's compelling evidence that indeed a miracle occurred, the resurrection. So really, this is a question that really displays the writer's lack of understanding or knowledge of mm -hmm. the evidence that is out there. There's compelling evidence. Oh, yeah. The evidence is so thick. It's hard to refute. And, um, you know, many uh, atheists do agree on this evidence, yet they choose not to uh, believe. And, and that's in their ignorance and, um, you know, their worldly wisdom, which always will fail. But yes, a good answer, Pat. You know, the evidence is evident. And again, go to evidenceandanswers.org to, you know, answer a lot of these questions. And again, you can also email Pat if you have any direct questions for him as well. Now, let's move on to another question. How do we explain the fact that, again, it says the fact that Jesus has never appeared to you. Well, once again, this is a, a poor question. Mm -hmm. you know, must we always see things before we believe in their existence? Right. You know, for example, I don't need to see Alexander the Great. He doesn't need to appear to me for me to believe he was a real historical person who accomplished some, some pretty spectacular things. Mm -hmm. you know, but I don't need to see him appear before me. Right. You know, well... How do I know he existed? Well, I've got the evidence. We've got the historical evidence. And same thing with Christ. We've got more, much more evidence of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ than we do of Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. And there's also many things we do not see yet, you know, even atheists believe in. For example, the Big Bang. 
Who's seen that? Well, no one. Yet <laughs> science is pretty unanimous that the universe began with the Big Bang. Right. Well, how do we know that? Mm -hmm. Well, we've got the evidence. And if we look at the evidence, what's the most reasonable conclusion? Oh, well, the Big Bang. And many believe in that, yet have never seen it. And we could go on and give numerous other examples. You know, radio microwaves you know, mm -hmm. that are flying through here in the air as we record and we're going out on the radio. Right. Well, has anyone seen those? Mm -mm. No, no one has seen those. Yet, so because we haven't seen it, we don't believe in it? No, you know, we look at the evidence that's there, we make the right conclusions. So, you know, this question is one that's, it's really a false question. Or it's really a poorly uh, stated kind of question. Okay, let's move on to the next question. The question is, why would Jesus want you to eat his body and drink his blood? Now, before um, Pat answers that, once again, we're getting all these questions that you're hearing today from GodIsImaginary.org. And so these questions, you know, we're not just uh, pulling out, but this is their top 10 questions, Pat. And I find it just so amusing because, again, it gives us the opportunity. So, Pat, why would Jesus want you to eat his body and drink his blood? Well, you know, that shows that our questioner here doesn't understand, you know, has really not read through the New Testament and does mm -hmm. not understand what's going on here. You know, Jesus here is, before he's going to the cross, it's the Last Supper mm -hmm. with his disciples, and he's introducing what Christians celebrate today, the ceremony of communion, you know, remembering the death and sacrifice that Christ had for us, that Christ did for us. Uh, paying for the price of our sin that we could have eternal life. And if you read the passage, Tony, it, it's clear to pretty much anyone who would read it. And if you read it in its proper context, Christ is speaking symbolically. You know, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door. You know, well, did Jesus mean that he's this wooden square, you know, rectangular mm -hmm. wooden thing on hinges? Mm -hmm. No, you know, obviously he's speaking symbolically and anyone reading the new testament would understand that and that's what's going on here when he's speaking to his disciples at that last supper jesus said i am the vine you are the branches what did he mean we were twigs <laughs> and he, he you know he was a grapevine or something no you know mm -hmm. obviously you've got to take the bible and any literature you read in its proper context and any literature has metaphors allegories symbolism mm -hmm. And so you've got to read it in its proper context. And so obviously the questioner here has shown really he has not read carefully the New Testament. And we would often challenge our atheist friends who ask questions like these, you know, to really read through the New Testament. Yeah, you know? and, and we do encourage that, you know, is uh, to read through it. Um, as we search the Bible, again, you made a very good point, Pat. We need to read the Bible in its uh, proper context. You know, uh, knowing the history, knowing who the book was aimed at. Yeah, you know, and Tony, a lot of questions that I do get from atheists and Muslims and Buddhists and those who, you know, aren't believers in Christ, I get a lot of questions like this, and it really shows that they really have not read carefully through the New Testament. And a lot of questions are of this kind of nature. Uh, moving on to the next question. Now, this is a really good question as well. Why Christians get divorced at the same rate as non-Christian? Well, you know, Tony, the Bible clearly speaks against divorce. Right. You know, that covenant is to be for a lifetime. Yet, 
many Christians do get divorced. Maybe it looks the same rate as the non-Christian world. Well, does that invalidate Christianity, Jesus Christ, and the teachings of Christ? No, not at all. Not at all. See, we do not judge a religion or a philosophy or ideology because of the failure of its followers. Mm-hmm. You know, we judge it by its teachings. And as Christians, you know, we are not the ultimate standard by which we measure Christianity. The ultimate standard is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Good know, point. He is the standard. All right. So you don't judge Christianity by the failure of its followers. Mm-hmm. And we don't do that in life either. For example, Tony, we don't condemn democracy and the freedoms that we have because some people abuse their freedoms. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't say, well, look, there's thousands who have committed crimes and abused their freedoms here in the United States. Therefore, democracy, you know, we condemn democracy and we don't believe in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you look at the ideology itself. We do not conclude the medical practice mm-hmm. is false because there are doctors there who abuse the medical practice. No, you know, you have to look at the teachings itself and you look at its founder. For example, Islam, you look at its teachings and then you look at the example of Islam. Who do you look at? Well, you look at Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And same thing here with Christianity. You look at the truth of the teachings of the Bible and your ultimate standard by which you should judge is Jesus Christ. So you don't judge Christianity by the failures of its followers. You've got to look at its teachings and look at uh, the ultimate example, and that is Jesus Christ. A good point. You know, what is our standard rule of measurement? Is it our experience? Is it um, the things, uh, you know, that go on in other people's lives? Or is the standard rule of measurement the living Word of God today? You know, there is another question that I would actually like to ask you, Pat. It's a very simple question, but why isn't the evidence more obvious for God's existence, you know, why not, you know, that glowing cross in the sky, you know, I mean, that, that I don't know, that big uh, lightning bolt strike you and just, yeah, there it is, you know. You know, Tony, that's a great question. In the debate I had over the radio several months ago, I got asked this question, why doesn't God make it so obvious that we can't deny him a glowing cross in the sky, why not? thunder and lightning, mm-hmm. you know. Well, the answer is this, God gives us enough evidence that if we want to pursue him, then we will be able to find him. But if we reject the evidence that's there, you know, then he won't come and stalk us and force us to believe in him. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. All right. Let's say there's a girl that I'm interested in. Right. All right. And we meet on one of these dating sites, whatever, eHarmony, you know, one of those things. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. We meet And I sent her an invitation for a relationship. Mm -hmm. And she says no. Well, what if then I went over to her house and waited for her every day? And when she woke up in the morning, there I am with with a bundle of roses. And then I followed her to work. Uh. And then I waited for her when she was done after work. And there I am with dinner and a candle. And even though she said no, then I went and followed her again back home. Mm. You know, and I kept calling her and writing her and following her wherever she went. Now, what would you call that? <laughs> well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is stalker. Right. You call that stalking. Yeah. All right. That's stalking. stalking. Hey, if she doesn't want a relationship with me and I've given her an invitation, mm-hmm. then it would be wrong for me to force myself upon her into a relationship that she doesn't want. Hmm. In fact, it would actually be criminal. We call that stalking. Right. As you said. Hmm. And God doesn't stalk us. 
He gives us enough evidence to know He is there. And if we want to pursue Him, we're going to get more evidence. And when He gives us that invite into a relationship with Him, you know, we can freely choose to enter into that relationship with Him. But if we reject the evidence that is there, He's not going to stalk us. He's not going to force us to love Him and enter into a relationship with Him if we do not want to be with Him. So uh, the evidence is there. But he's not going to stalk us and force us into a relationship with him. Yeah, that's a very good point. And then, again, like you said, a very good point. He sends out the invitation to us. And he sent it to all of mankind. The evidence, again, is hard to uh, refute from the resurrection alone and all the uh, evidence that supports that. So a lot of times people, they do know he exists, but they still refuse the invitation. They choose to turn and they choose not to have that relationship with God. But for those that do accept that invitation, God even so more reveals himself to them. Right, Tony. And I hope through this exercise, through answering these 10 questions, and they're great questions, I hope people see that Christianity is reasonable. You don't have to jettison your mind to believe it. They're good, good, solid reason and evidence for our faith in Christ. And I think that was the fun part of this exercise and the show with you. So thanks a lot, Tony. Oh, thank you, Pat. Hey, if you appreciate this show, a program that offers straightforward, intelligent evidence and answers, then please support us financially and prayerfully. Your support helps us stay on this station and keeps Pat speaking all over the world, from colleges and universities to places where Christianity is forbidden and persecuted around the world. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and click on the Donate button or just send us a note and let us know you're listening. It would be a huge blessing to us, so let us hear from you today. And you can get this entire series, 10 Questions Every Christian Must Answer, at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.